Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Osama Say Ekator with me. Osama Say is a Boston-based poet, writer, and author. His debut book, Situationship, was invited to the 2019 Brooklyn Book Festival on behalf of the Azure Literary Group. He it was also recognized by the 2020 North Street Book Prize and was studied at the University of Bonn in Germany. Osama Say will be releasing his second book, I Am You, on July 26th. Osama Say is also going to be starting his MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management starting this fall. Osama Say, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be back. Yes, sir. Of course. Thankful to have you on. Uh, so, you know, for people that are used to listening to Grateful Living podcast interviews at this point, I usually ask guests, take us back to the beginning, where you grew up, um, your family situation, and what type of kid you were. Uh, but Osama Say has actually been on this podcast before. He was on in July of 2020 uh, and, and talked uh, about his background growing up and talked about situationship there. So uh, feel free to listen or watch that interview to learn more about his, um, you know, growing up from childhood to adulthood. Um, instead, I guess, you know, we, we last talked, you know, publicly um, in July of 2020. Um, do you want to catch people up, you know, on how life has been uh, these, these past two years? Um, in your announcement trailer, you talked about having writer's block, having other things go on, like studying for the GMAT. Um, so, you know, maybe update update the fans on uh, what life has been like since July of 2020. Yeah, yeah. And I'll also say, um, um, like you mentioned, right, for anyone that's interested in hearing the first episode or watching the first episode, highly recommend it. Um, but just a disclaimer, when you look at it, I look a lot different. Look, it was during COVID time, you know, like, dealing with fourth of july stuff so you know i looked a little sick so don't mind my appearance in that video that's just a disclaimer okay um but uh you know an update on how things have been um you know you, you mentioned it all in regards to you know studying for my gmat for more than a year so for anyone that's not familiar with the gmat um in order to attend some of the uh, top business schools in the country a lot of them look at gmat scores as well as gre scores so think of it like a, a, a big boy um, SAT, basically. Um, and I was not good at that big boy SAT. I took that bad boy probably, uh, I, think I took the GMAT like three times. I took the GRE two times. And yeah, it just was not working out. Um, I had a lot of tutoring sessions, whether it be tutoring class or like one-on-one. Um, it was tough. And, you know, when I decided to uh, start working towards my MBA, um, I thought I could write the book simultaneously. Um, but quickly, especially as the GMAT thing was not working out like I expected, um, I had to really like focus on that. And it really pained me to do so, but I kind of had to put a pause to, um, uh, you know, working on this, this upcoming book. Um, and that was a decision I made and I, I don't regret it. However, it was tough because, um, you know, and I've had this discussion too with uh, my friend who is going to med school, um, and he has his own side passions as well. Um, his is more so of, you know, uh, exercising and fencing. But, um, you know, when you kind of put a hold on what makes you happy, 
creatively and you focus on this, you know, this long-term thing, um, sometimes it's kind of hard to uh, get out of a dark space. For me, I kept failing the GMAT, right? Which is okay. Not everyone's good at those tests. Um, however, I didn't have now, you know, that's the, the negative side of things, but I didn't really have the positive side in regards to creative work because my creative work was on hold. So with all that being said, you know, I, I was kind of getting into a, not a, a scary space, but definitely a darker space in my life because um, there was a lot of negativity, it felt like, but I was able to, to you know, stay strong in that regard. Um, and after the, the fifth test, I say, look, y'all are going to get what you get. All you school, you're going to get what you get. Take this and run with it. If you like me, you like me. If you don't, you don't. Um, and I'm happy with the schools that, that did accept me. Um, I did get accepted into uh, Boston College, um, best school in the world. Um, you know, obviously we went there undergrad. Yes, um, I also was accepted into um, the University of Virginia on a full ride, um, then Duke University, um, and then uh, Michigan State University, and then lastly, Northwestern. Um, obviously, I chose Northwestern, sorry, BC, I got to switch it up, but um, choosing Northwestern. Um, right above Chicago. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and once I kind of got that acceptance letter, or at least once I finished the applications in January, I said, all right, that's out the way. Time to get back to it. Time to get back to the book. Um, I know I mentioned this to you offline, but you know, the book had nearly been finished for about like a year. So technically, if I didn't have the whole grad school thing, I could have released this last year. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't just I wasn't mentally ready. I wasn't mentally there. I still had to do final edits. Um, and then plan all the marketing. Yep. Um, but by January this year, you know, once all of the school stuff was out the way, before I'd even known about Northwestern, um, I was ready to finally get this book thing done. It was paining me to like hold on to this for so long. Um, so like just being able to now have it being, you know, released. And so far when it comes to the marketing, got in a great reception. Um, and, you know, this morning I was checking the um, Amazon's uh, uh, new releases or upcoming releases for Black African American poetry. And earlier on, when I looked, it was like a number 45. Now it's at seven. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. Um, hopefully, by the time that you all are watching this interview, it's not lower than seven, or at least yeah. hopefully it's not like all the way down. If it is, it's okay. But yeah. at least I got to seven um, so far. So I'm just really excited. I'm really happy about you know what's to come. And I know a long winded answer to your question of how things have been since, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, um, you know, obviously things worked out as, you know, you're going to a very good business school with Northwestern, but in the moment of maybe taking that first or second GMAT, um, can you talk about what kept you going or how you kept that perseverance mindset? You know, I think a lot of people, might have taken it once and just been like, all right, this is not for me. I'm not going to go to business school, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you kept going. Um, you know, what was the mindset? Yeah. A um, couple of things, a uh, couple of factors, right? Um, so just me in general, I don't tend to like, I don't quit. I'm pretty stubborn. I'm pretty competitive. So like that was driving me. Um, and I know you, all can probably see Kobe in the back. RIP. I got, you know, that mama mentality of just like keep on putting the hours, like things, good things that are to come to you do not come easy. 
right? You have to work really, really hard for them. And even the time where you think that it's time to quit, just you still got to try. Um, and so just keep on pushing. And, you know, that's one factor, just my natural being. But I, have, I also had, you know, external factors. So, for example, I was in an MBA prep program called uh, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, um, acronym MLT. Um, shout out to my MLT family. Shout out to my MLT coach. Um, it is a prep program that allows you to prepare for school. You know, you get to meet with the admissions counselors. You have a coach. And they have a requirement, too, for the GMAT. Um, so like they have their own requirements, which I won't go into too much detail, but I had my coach, you know, also prepping me, also telling me that, Hey, it's okay. A lot of people don't pass on the first attempt. Hey, it's okay. A lot of people don't pass on the second attempt. Hey, it's okay. It's the third attempt, you know, get in there, but keep on trying. Fourth five is when she kind of told me like, Hey, forget it. Like we're going to rock with your best score. Um, and whoever likes you, whoever likes you, um, you know, so just, you know, just look forward to it. Um, and it's interesting. A lot of business schools say that we don't only look at your test scores, but I mean, I want to share my opinions on this platform. Um, but I think that the schools that I did get into, they obviously looked at me as a full candidate versus just my scores. And I really appreciate them for that. Um, and it's something that my coach is telling me, but it's kind of hard to believe when you're in that space. So Overall, once again, like I just don't tend to quit, and I had good, you know, uh, a good support system around me um, to keep me pushing because um, I know this, I knew this was for something that I truly wanted to do in the future. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, throughout this time, uh, you've been able to, you know, even though you talked about having writer's block, you've been able to work on on poetry and and things of that nature. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know. For anyone out there that might have a passion on the side or or things of that nature, you know, how have you managed, you know, your personal life, your your regular job, studying for the GMAT, and then also including poetry? I'm sure there have been at times where people have been like, oh, just like that isn't anything, just don't do that, or you know. Uh, maybe just do one po- like one Instagram post a month and you're good or um, but you kept at it and, and you're publishing this. Um, you know, how, how did you how did you do that? Yeah. So. With, with when it comes to the poetry, um, I think I think to answer that question, sometimes you have to know, you know, what to sacrifice. So in the past year, I had to sacrifice the poetry in a sense. That doesn't mean I gave up on my dream. I knew what the long-term dream was. Once again, I knew I had this book, you know, tucked for like a whole year. Um, uh, But I also knew that, um, you know, I'm focusing on business school. I'm dealing with other personal stuff. And I don't, you know, I'm not in the mental space to put out good poetry right now. I had to tell myself that. Um, Because at first, you know, early in my, let's say, poetry career, I was posting a lot more consistently, posting a lot more poetry consistently. Um, but in the past year, you know, or year, maybe you could say year and it's some change. Um, I had so many other things going on that I found myself saying, all right, I haven't posted in a while. I have to come up with new poetry. Like I have to, I have to, I have to. And the poetry that I was coming up with, luckily I didn't publish it, but the po- poetry I was coming up with was not the greatest in my opinion. Um, I didn't feel comfortable uh, publishing it because it wasn't, up to what my standards were. Um, and so I had to tell myself that first off, don't force yourself to write. That's something that Langston Hughes, my favorite poet of all time, has 
I said in the past, you know, um, don't force yourself to write. The poem that you force yourself to write is that's not the one that you should be releasing. It should come to you naturally. Whatever your muses are, whenever you just feel like, all right, it's time to write, that's when you should write. And so I had to use that approach, which is why I think last year I only published on my Instagram, I think published like three or four poems, probably three, yeah, three to four poems on my Instagram, which is really low for what I've done in the past. But it's because I was working on other things. It's because I knew that in 2022, I would have a whole book out. Um, I would have a lot more content, right? I knew all of that. And that kind of kept me sane um, for that year. It kept me sane. And so to answer that question, once again, sometimes you need to know what to sacrifice. And that might be your dream per se. But if you have a long-term goal for it after, then you taking that time off of it is not going to hurt because you know this is more so a short-term pause for a more long-term gain. Yeah. So let's get into the book. It's, it's called I Am You. Uh, can you talk about the writing process and, you know, how you, you know, came about putting it all together? Um, there's obviously three themes of love, religion, and, and social injustice. You know, um, how did you come up with these t- themes and, you know, how was the, the writing process of accumulating the chapters? Yeah, so for the writing process, um, so just a couple of Easter eggs, right? So situationship was supposed to be about i think i ended up uh publishing only uh 30 poems from situationship but initially it was supposed to be like let's say 50 60 um poem um it was supposed to be a much larger book but and that book was kind of cut in half one was love which ended up being situationship and the other was race mm-hmm. um it was actually called plot for a race um it's something i started in college for a poetry class and I expanded into an actual book. Um, my literary consultant uh, told me to not do that. Um, it was that's another thing that you know creatives have to learn how to do is take feedback. I know sometimes with creatives, we're very vulnerable with our work um, or very um, sensitive about our work because it's our personal. You know, we're, we're putting ourselves out there for people. So when we take feedback, it hurts. But sometimes you got to take that feedback for once again like a better result. Um, so she told me that, hey, this is all great individual poems, but I see two books in here. And I think you should cut this in half um, because the story that you're trying to write, I don't think you're there yet. Luckily, I am there now because mm-hmm. I Am You is that same, uh, uh, you know, idea. Um, and she approved it this time. Um, so I had to grow into that. But overall, right, so I had to cut it in half. So now I had this other set of poems that were more related to race. I had those for some time. I took those poems. I went back to my idea of what if I did a book about a love triangle, right? Situationship was different because it was two, it was mostly two characters. It was one character chasing the other, right? And how that tends to take form in the, in, in the, in the space of a situationship. This book, it's no longer the character that uh, the narrator chasing per se. But now they have options. Now they have two people that are, you know, potential mates, let's say. Um, how does that person, you know, deal with that kind of uh, situ- uh, situation? And, you know, I had two of the characters represent, and one's A America, represents America. The other one is Nala, which represents a strong Black woman, right? And so that's what I made the love triangle. Um, and so I took those initial sets of, of, Un- unreleased poems 
made new poems to fit this storyline, to fit this theme, are these themes of, once again, religion, love, and social injustice. And I was able to put them all together. Um, so that's from a, from a narrative standpoint, that's how I was able to kind of make I Am You. Um, I Am You is 60 poems, so almost double uh, situationship, um, 130 pages, which is like a lot more than a uh, situationship. So, um, you know, that was that's the, the, the narrative process. For each poem individually, the writing process for that were the current events. You know, some of these poems have been published already. Um, some of these poems were written and, you know, posted on my Instagram um, during the time of, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So some of these poems, you know, are, are a little bit, um, I would say, dated. However, I knew that when I wrote these poems that, unfortunately, this this kind of content and subject is always going to be at the front of things um, when it comes to social injustice. And so, um, yeah, so these poems are written at different times some more recent than others, but I think as a collective, they form a great story and I'm really excited for our people to take a look at it. Yeah, can you talk about your relationship with speaking about your experiences with race? Um, you know, obviously um, George Floyd, I think, brought to America, um, and you know the like a different level of recognition uh, you know to the entire society but i think people of color had always recognized that these things had already been happening um and maybe not videoed as well or or whatnot um has this always been in you because it's not easy you know i i look at um i remember watching the last dance and they were we're talking about Michael um, Jordan and, and he talked about, you know, he didn't want to be polarizing. Right. And um, he didn't feel like it was his responsibility. Um, you know, when did you feel comfortable taking on that responsibility? And, and, you know, even though people might read something and judge you, um, you're good with that. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I guess part of it is my background, right? So my dad is a civil rights activist, human rights activist um, from Nigeria. So he's done a lot of work in Nigeria. Um, I grew up right, like, you know, proofreading his petitions that he would send back to the Nigerian government. Um, and so I kind of already had that in, you know, from my own history of just knowing how to uh, put words to an issue and, you know, find potential solutions um, in a way that is uh, digestible. Uh, my mother is a pastor as well. So, you know, that's another outspoken uh, personality that's sharing words of wisdom or stories of that nature, right? So I already had that in my, my DNA of being able to, you know, be outspoken and, and speak on topics that maybe others aren't necessarily good at speaking on or don't want to hear. Um, now, for me personally, when I was finally uh, able to talk on these topics, um, I know that back at BC, um, I kind of had a little, uh, I, you know, that's when I started to actually do perform poetry, uh, spoken word. Um, I knew which topics immediately that I kind of were drawn to, which was love and race. And um, my senior year, actually my junior and senior year, I ran a poetry event called Juice. 
um, which I had other uh, local Boston college poets uh, share their experience of what it meant to be a black student on campus. Um, and I had an ally um, with that being my um, professor, um, my acting professor. I took an acting class senior year, um, or sorry, junior year. So and that was a cool class. But um, he was, um, you know, the person that was kind of producing this event and allowed me to just run wild with it. And so those are some of my first times, like actually like talking about these topics confidently. Now, when it comes to the corporate space, um, corporate America, that's definitely a hard space to kind of talk about these subjects. Um, my, and I'm no longer at my old employer because I'm preparing for business school, but at my previous employer, um, you know, I, I was the only one of two black people on our team. Um, and I remember when George Floyd happened, I just remember like, you know, it's the pandemic. So we're all sitting in front of a TV. We're all at home. And like, I don't even like watching the news like that. Um, but it's so hard to not watch. It's so hard to not watch that video and not feel away. It's so hard to not see what's going on in these streets because this is your country too. Like you want to be informed and you empathize and you feel for everyone that is experiencing this. And you see yourself in all those people because you might be the next person, unfortunately, right? And so I knew that I, I was drawn to this. Um, however, it felt like my the rest of my team wasn't because you know when you're you're starting a conversation before a meeting you know that's when you kind of have some downtime to kind of talk about these things openly um, before you actually get to the topic at hand and nobody was bringing it up and so I knew I felt the way about it I felt really disappointed I felt really alone um, and I brought that up to my manager thank God that she was an amazing manager um, and she is she's a white woman but a white woman that was open to hearing this and not only open to hearing this apologize and not only apologize but then gave me the platform to now try to do you know try to make a change right um and with that we led to a book club where we that was awesome because then it gave us an actual you know a foundation we could all read this together and find the words the feelings that we have and it was a great experience i think it made us all come together close um become closer and it made me also realize that it's not that some of my coworkers didn't want to talk about this because they didn't care. It's because they didn't know how to. They didn't know how to say these, you know, talk about these things without coming off as maybe ignorant or um, offending somebody, right? And that's, that's completely fair, right? Even myself as a black man, I sometimes don't want to say something that might offend someone else of another race, culture, or gender, right? Um, and so it just helped us all talk about these things. And once again, it was another opportunity for me to start speaking up on these topics. And I learned how to talk to people without attacking, per se, without making them feel attacked. Um, where a lot of my poetry, and I've been told this in the past, is a matter of fact. It's hard to like debate it because I'm just saying what it is. Um, I'm not really, like obviously I'm passionate about what, what I'm saying, but I'm just sharing to you what my experience is or maybe what my brother's experiences or my sister's experiences, cousins, family, all of that. And then I want you to now take that and do whatever you want with that. I want you to now fill in the blanks, right, for yourself. I'm sharing my experience that you can now learn. Um, and I think that has been effective. I think that has helped people to, you know, um, listen a little bit more, even if they don't disagree, at least, I, I mean, even if they, they, they do disagree, I've planted a seed and they now can keep this in the back of their mind whenever they're in spaces having the same conversation with another person. 
Um, and so I think that's what's helped me not feel like I have a burden when I'm talking about these things. Like, unlike Michael, like, I don't feel like I'm polarized. Um, if I speak about these things, I'm just speaking. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that's kind of how I got to this space of being able to talk about these topics. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess on that topic, you know, you talk about, you know, the bullying um, from, from your dialect and then maybe, you know, different forms of racism in terms of maybe 60 years ago, it was go to the back of the bus. Um, but today it's, you know, microaggressions, um, you know, maybe someone who's not black saying the N word because it's in a rap song, things of that nature. Um, I guess, what were you hoping for maybe the, you know, you know, people that aren't of color to, to reflect on? And maybe you answered some of that in that last answer, but um, was it something that specifically you hoped they reflected on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say that, yeah, I wanted them to realize that it's not going to be, because look, I mean, so when it comes to racism or to be called a racist, and this is from, you know, part of this is from my learning with the White Fragility book. I can't take credit for all of this. Um, shout out to Dr. Robin D'Angelo. But um, sometimes when you're called a racist, you assume that you're being called a bad person. It's called the good bad binary. So um, you've called me a racist. That means I'm a bad person. That means I'm walking around with a KKK, KKK hoodie. That's not what that means, okay? Racism, by its true definition, is someone who, who has power socially has the ability to oppress another because of that power. And if you look at this country, obviously, you know, which skin tone is more so in power. That's just the definition of racism, right? Um, and so you could be a good person, but you may have racist tendencies because you grew up in a country or in this system, right? And so what I was trying to do with this book was show people that racism isn't, once again, the 1960s definition of racism per se. It's not walking around in a KKK hoodie. It's not walking around calling people the N-word. It's not walking around and saying that you have to go sit at the back of the bus or you have to use the white, uh, the black only bathroom. It's not that, but it's still happening in different ways. And so the poem that you referenced was, it's called Virgin. Um, and yeah, I explained kind of the new essence of racism per se, or different new experiences um, that still hurt, you know, just as much um, in this new age, you know, uh, uh, version. And so I just wanted, you know, people that are not of this culture to realize that, um, to be mindful of their privilege, um, and when you're mindful of it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can change the system, but at least you're mindful of your privilege. At least you're mindful that, ooh, I might have an unconscious bias towards a person, or I might, I might have been putting a stereotype on somebody because of whatever the reasoning is. Um, I just wanted people to be mindful of it. And the same thing honestly goes for people of color. Um, I talk about, you know, uh, the conflict between, um, let's say, uh, African-Americans, right? So people that were brought to this country um, through the slave trade, you know, years ago, and then also Africans, 
you know, new, new, let's say new immigrants. Um, you know, there is a conflict there. Maybe we could talk about it later on, but, you know, sometimes we have our own unconscious bias. I know that even myself, because I grew up in this country when I was younger, if I'm walking down the street at night and I see somebody in a hoodie of color, I'm not going to just dap them up and say, what's up, my brother? I'm probably crossing the street, right? Because I'm, I have this idea of what it means when a, somebody of color is wearing a hoodie. That's not right. I'm black. I'm not supposed to be thinking that. So that's what was conditioned into me. And I had to be mindful of that to make that change, right? And so the same thing can be said sometimes within the black coats, um, black community, because we have stereotypes of each other. Sometimes African-Americans have stereotypes of Africans and Africans vice versa, right? And so we need to just be mindful of these things so that hopefully we could make a change and, you know, avoid some of these, these microaggressions that have hurt us for so many years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I don't, I don't want to challenge you too much, but maybe, um, you know, for the devil's advocate out there who, who doesn't feel like, um, there's a lot of racism going on in this world, um, you know, how would you speak to them um, about some of the experiences you talk about in this book? Yeah, um, no, I love that. Um, and so if they don't think there's racism, then they haven't been turning on the TV. Um, and if they have turned on the TV, maybe they're not on the right channel. Um, but, you know, if someone were to say that things have changed and there are no issues, people are complaining, people are too sensitive, um, they're all entitled to their opinion. Like, I can't say who's right or wrong, per se, but all I can, once again, show the experience of other people. And if you were to be in their shoes, would you like that? Um, I know that some people, you know, one of the poems that I've, I've, I've performed before is that, you know, um, I say, you know, uh, a lot of times when I do these poems, people get uncomfortable and I get uncomfortable, too. I get uncomfortable where 11 months out of the year, I'm viewed as a suspect. But for that one month, that one beautiful Black History Month, I am viewed as either a survivor, a savior, or the child of a civil rights leader. I get uncomfortable when someone else's fear for me might be the reason why I get killed. I get uncomfortable where someone, where my continuous fight for freedom is viewed as another person's reason to believe it's the start of their own racist genocide, right? So it's just that idea of, you know, when people of color, or marginalized people are trying to stand up for themselves. Now the other views them as, oh, wait, they're standing up for themselves and they're getting this treatment. Now I'm left in the dust and now I'm the one that's, you know, marginalized. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's not going to be a quick, like, pendulum switch. That's the first thing. And then just overall, right, it's more so acknowledging another person's story, once again. Um, it's more so just being open to hearing other people's stories and take it how you may from there. I'm not going to convince somebody of whatever the case may be. And that's not what this book is to do either. It's not to convince anybody. It's more so to share an experience. And for those that are going through that experience, lift up your voice, be, you know, speak up. Um, that's literally the last line in the book um, is to be that voice, right? And so, yeah, it's not meant to convince anybody per se, but it's more so just to share an experience um, and let people make their own decisions. Yeah. Um, one of the 
themes of this book is is the narrative of becoming a man. Um, is there anything specifically you want to say on, on that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, the narrative of becoming a man is kind of the central, you know, even though there are different themes which you've highlighted, it's the central storyline that's making this story progress. It's about a narrator, um, presumably a black male, that, you know, is questioning what does it mean to be a man? I'm happy you, you mentioned that. I got a, a couple of notes here that I, I wanted to mention today, too. Yeah. Um, you can see it earlier in the book, right? So for that first, um, uh, for that one, some of the earlier poems in the book, uh, it's, you know, Strange Love um, from the Poplar Trees, um, which is the second poem in the book. Uh, A.M. Erica, once again, the symbolism of, of America, uh, mentions, I need a real man. I need a real man. And this is the narrator's, you know, childhood crush. So that's already getting in his head. Real man, a real man. What does that even mean to be a real man? Um, and why does, you know, why is it so desirable? So from there, it kind of gets his brain thinking of looking for this definition and, and grandpa's uh, vices, um, which is, uh, I believe that it's the, it's the first poem in the second chapter. Um, he thinks he has a definition of what it means to be a man. And I, I can quickly read it. Um, Okay, so Gil Scott Heron blares on the noisy speakers, and while a nosy mind can't mind its business, I hear my goals. All I want is a good home and a wife and a children and some food to feed them every night, right? Sounds like a traditional definition of a man having a wife and kids and making sure that you can, you know, provide for them, right? And so with that kind of uh, uh, thinking, it kind of gives them this false idea of what it means to be a man. Um, or not false, but, you know, just kind of this, this surface layer idea of what it means to be a man. And the narrator continues on this, 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 this journey. And soon that definition keeps getting challenged and challenged. Once again, that A America character comes back into play. And you notice that um, it's during the Darren poems. She's intrigued by this other character named Darren. That's literally the opposite of the narrator that does everything bad. That is a stereotypical black male. Um, does crimes, does everything wrong, like everything wrong. And I wrote him like that on purpose because that's who America is interested in. That's who America will heighten or, you know, uplift because she wants to see that one succeed and burn, right? That's the one that gives her attention as well, right? And so with the narrator seeing that, that kind of warps his own sense because he, he's longing for America as well, but she's not giving him that attention anymore because she's found an, a real man in her opinion. Um, and once again, as that definition keeps cracking and cracking, and this Nala character is trying to teach him all these things about what it means to just be a black person in general and be proud of that, still the narrator asks around for what it means to be a man, and that leads to black man commandments, um, which if you don't mind, could I yeah, like, quickly yeah, read? Yeah, 100%. Okay. Cool. So Black Man Commandments, it's the first chapter in the third, uh, uh, sorry, it's the first poem in the third chapter. Um, and once again, this is when the, the character is trying to ask, what does it mean to be a man? Like, now I'm really confused. I'm in a relationship finally with this Nala character. I need to be a real man for her, right? So this is Black Man Commandments. I had never been in a real relationship before, and I wasn't sure on how to be a real man for her. I asked my older brothers and they said, 
expect to look expensive and accept your excessive needs. You're conditioned to think your self-worth lives in the condition of your needs. But if being an athlete is not your path, wrap yourself in rap. If not your own lyrics, at least live in theirs. The almighty Jehovah once said, me give my heart to a woman never happened. I'll be forever matching. And those are the, the rules you must follow. Don't swallow your pride. Cough up your dollars and spit knowledge to shorties. Make sure these bottles make it to the party and make sure everybody knows they came from you. They came for you because their jealousy, their envy, the reason why you're the definition of toxic masculinity is due to their insecurities, not yours. Only worry about what's yours. Never take ownership of your errors to be selfish. It's your world. Protect your ego to the cure, uh, to the core. Your cure is to disregard their hurts. Matter of fact, disregard your feelings. Disregard your peers. Disregard your fears. Fuck your tears. Fuck who cares? Because around here, you're the second coming. Fuck becoming a man. You're already a god. Right? So obviously, that is all the wrong things you should hear um, if you're trying to figure out what it means to be a man. Yeah. Um, and so this now leads him towards a destructive path. He finds himself back in A America's good graces because once again, he's embracing these toxic qualities. Um, and, you know, it takes him, you know, it takes the death of um, his friend, Darren, um, to kind of, in a sense, snap him out. And he wants to find justice for Darren. He doesn't know how. And that kind of works simultaneously with this idea of what it means to become a man. And that leads him to church. That leads him to finding faith um and you know the the that leads to now uh grandpa's wisdom which is the first poem of the last chapter the fourth chapter and in that he says which is his final answer uh makai 6 8 is open on the nightstand and as i stand this morning i come closer to my goals the requirement of man is to do justice love kindness and walk humbly with god right and this is a more uh, formidable answer to him. It puts him on a much better path and, you know, eventually leads to his own answers of not only what it means to be a man, but also what to do when someone else needs justice on your behalf. Um, and he realizes that he had those answers in him the whole time. Um, he was making up too many excuses, but the answer of what it means to be a man, what it means to, you know, do right by somebody, that lived within him the whole time. Um, and so that's just that, that the narr the narrative of what it means to be a man. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Now hearing you tie it all together, it makes, um, it's, it's tied together very well. Um, Thank you. yeah. You know, I, I guess, um, there are some aspects of like, um, Black excellence, though, that you also talk about, um, for example, with your sisters. Um, do you want to talk about that point as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Black excellence piece um, is really highlighted when this Nala character, right, this strong Black woman, is showing him how to love himself, right? Um, and this is the woman that, you know, gets him away from A America. Um, and it's it's honestly probably my favorite part of the book. It's obviously the more happier poems, the more lovey poems. Um, but it's, you know, this is black empowerment um, as well. And so I really wanted that knowledge character to not serve as his savior per se, but someone to just once again, help him realize that these things already lived within him and stop trying to gain it, to, uh, to, to, to gain the attention of all these outside sources that don't matter when you are already perfect the way you are you are already good 
Um, and, and, you know, the poem that represents that the most is Nala's lesson. Um, if you don't mind, I would love yeah, to quickly yeah. read that. Um, yes, yeah, so Nala's lessons. And this actually comes right after um, a poem called The Bite, which really dives into that um, earlier topic I mentioned earlier about the conflict between African-Americans and Africans, um, where this cousin character is challenging Nala and kind of making her feel bad for immigrating to this, uh, emigrating to this country. Um, but Nala helps her realize that, no, we're literally the same. Like, we shouldn't be beefing. Um, and then Nala kind of finishes off with this poem, which is called Nala's Lesson, okay? Or Nala's Lesson. They never taught us about our African past, but we know we were, scratch that, we are kings and queens. Peasants can't silence royalty because black voices lift their streams and rivers, forced our ancestors to live nightmares. Now we must live out their dreams. From night shifts to nine to five to 99 problems, but money ain't one for black sons and daughters. The heritage of black excellence is not learned, it's inherited. Right. So once again, like this is thank you. This is, you know, things that um, you innately have um, that sometimes you just have to find it within yourself to be proud of who you are. And once again, not fall victim or fall for the trap of these outside sources, one being an AM Erica type, uh, a force that wants everything out of you, but it's so quick to throw you away when, it, when it's convenient. Um, so, yeah, so that's some of the, the moments of that black excellence. Um, and you know, the, the narrator realizes he, he made a mistake going back to a America, even after learning this about himself. And he tries to come back to Nala, which I guess not to spoil, but you know, you all will see, um, if she receives him, um, when he tries to return, but yeah. Yeah. Um, there, the other poem, um, with family cookout, do you want to talk about the, the bolded lines in case anyone's, um, not sure about why those are bolded. Yeah, yeah. So family cookout, right? So within the narrative, this is when the the narrator is bringing um, Nala to meet his family. That's that's really you know the message that was behind that poem. Um, and I wanted family cookout to kind of be messy. I wanted it to kind of represent how it feels to be at a family cookout. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, to help me out, I had to dig back to some of my inspirations. Um, so with this book in general, my main inspirations were Good Kid, Mad City, Kendrick Lamar. Um, I just love that album. And I love that it is a narrative, narrated, a narrative of young black male, uh, men um, in Compton going through a, a day in the life, basically. Um, and, you know, how that goes up and down like crazy. Um, but it ties in so beautifully. Um, and then also Boys in the Hood. Uh, and so even this is an Easter egg, right? So, um, Darren in this book, right, uh, is, is based on Ice Cube's character, um, in Boys in the Hood. So Boys in the Hood, Ice Cube's character, his name is Doughboy, fresh out of jail. You know, you could tell he's an intellectual man, but he's been in this system for so long that, you know, he, he you know, he falls back to crime a lot. And, you know, even when he kills his brother's, uh, assailant he feels bad for that and it eventually leads to his demise as well um but doughboy's real name is darren uh, which i had to do digging for that so his real name is darren um in the movie 
Um, that's what he's casted as. And so that's why I named my character, my kind of representation of that Darren as well, right? So Boys in the Hood, love that movie. That it has a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of symbolism in this book based on that. And um, for Family Cookout, I took a couple of lines from uh, Boys in the Hood. Um, I also took, um, sorry, getting a call. Um, I also took um, some lines from uh, Poetic Justice. And I kind of just smashed them all together, right? So the lines that are bolded are actually from um, these movies, right? So real quick, right? It says, mama's on the grill. He knows I didn't like his last girlfriend, right? So that's what um, Ricky's mom says to, uh, um, I forgot who she mentioned that to, but um, she mentions that in general, right? Um, and in this narrative, it's the mother saying that to Nala, right? His last girlfriend. Um, Rib smacked in barbecue. Someone got big because of time. I ain't no criminal. I ain't no criminal. I can read, bitch. That's Ice Cube's line. Um, and so I won't go through all of this, but like, once again, all these lines actually come from um, uh, these movies, Boys in the Hood and Poetic Justice. I mean, actually, one other Easter egg, right? So there's a line that says, her name is Shalika or Aisha. Do we got a girlfriend? You killing my action. That's actually two different characters. Um, I think Shalika is from Boys in the Hood and Aisha is from Poetic Justice, but they're acted by the same actress, um, which is Regina King. Um, yeah. And so that's why I put both of her names and actually Doobie Got a Girlfriend, that's from Boys in the Hood, and then You Killing My Action is from Poetic Justice. So I kind of just put them together since it's the same actress and I love her in general. She's awesome. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's one of my favorite poems um, just because it was pretty fun writing it. Um, and I hope, once again, readers enjoy it as well. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the song Rain and, and what that means? Yeah, yeah. So Rain is Rain is my baby. Um, Rain, I first wrote that, honestly, in 2016, which is crazy. That's, what, uh, six years ago now? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I wrote that a long time ago. Um, in Mississippi, I used to go to Mississippi once a year in college for, uh, to do volunteer work. Um, and I, I think I wrote it around that time and it was inspired by a Chance the Rapper song also oh, well, titled Drown, um, I believe it's titled Drown. And um, No Name is the one that performs it and she starts off by Lord Rain Down on Me. The thing with me, part of my creative writing style or process is I love to listen to music and I can hear a beat and tune out someone else's voice and just go off the beat and just go off the beat. And sometimes to start myself, I, I just need to hear one line from them and then I can fill in the rest. So when I heard no name say, Lord, Lord rain down on me, I just went crazy with that. I, I, said, I said, Lord rain down on me and please keep me going. You made my skin so beautiful, black and glowing. There's no reason why the media keeps on showing all the pain in this world when there's so much healing. Like it just started like that and I just let it flow. Yeah. And it started off as a freestyle, but then I started to do poetry and I was like, let me just turn this into a poem. Um, and I was putting it into this book, you know, in the religious chapter. And um, I started to get this idea and, and shout out to my friends as well for giving me this idea, but why not just turn it into a song? Um, or I, I think at first I had the idea of turning it and putting like hymns to it as if you're reading it like you're at church and there's actual notes on there. Like if you're like reading one of the songs there, 
Um, but then, you know, I got the recommendation. What if you could actually turn this into a song song? And so I ran with that. Uh, my good friend, Alvin Chingo, um, also a BC alum. Uh, shout out to him and Kari King. They do dope music. Um, if there's anything you're going to do after this interview, after you already bought my book, go listen to them. They're awesome. Um, but, you know, um, he did the production on the song. Um, it was uh, it was cool. It's, I've never made a song before. I've never written a song before. Um, and so to just be in that producing, you know, atmosphere, that was really cool. I love music. Um, and then it came down to actually finding the singers, um, which was a long process, a really long process, right? I said I had Rain already written from 2016. I wasn't looking for a singer for six years, but I definitely was looking for a singer for probably about a year. Yeah. Um, and a lot of like people that were like, oh, I love this idea. Sorry, I don't have enough time. Like a lot of like stringing me along and like, that's the thing with working with other creatives. You need a lot of patience sometimes. Um, and it was tough, but luckily um, there was one singer I knew who actually, uh, she came to one my last performance before COVID in February of 2019. She came to my performance, my um, cousin brought her the performance just so that we could in general network right um and i got to know a little bit more she has an amazing voice i got to learn more about her singing and it kind of just like dawned on me like why don't i just reach out to her um did thank god she said yes and like she should have been my number one choice from the get-go everything happened for a reason i think god gave me a lot of no's because he was like stop looking out there there's somebody that you already know. Um, and so I reached out to her. Her name is Brianna Denise. Um, amazing singer. Really, really talented. Um, like, she, she's good. So um, she sang the song. And I won't get into too much detail, but, like, she sang that song so fast. Like, I barely had to give her direction. Like, I think we needed, like, two run-throughs. And she just sang it. And to hear someone sing my lyrics, Something that I knew was a poem initially, just, just like, because it was me singing. All the demos that we were doing, it was me singing. I ain't the best singer. I ain't like, <laughs> I ain't Beyonce. Like, I'm not yeah. the best singer. So, like, finally having a real singer's voice on there was amazing. And then her her friend, um, Faith Hash, also amazing. She did the background vocals and really took it to another level. She added, like, like gaps and holes and, like, or, sorry, she, like, filled in gaps and holes that I didn't know were there. And so, um, and there's a little sprinkle of me, some of the demo uh, uh, stuff that we did, kept it in there. Yeah. I've been told it sounds good, so that's why I haven't taken it out. But, and the song will be, um, by the time this interview is out, I think the song would already be out too. So um, everyone go check out the song Rain on Spotify, Apple Music, um, literally it's going to be everywhere. Um, also YouTube music. And, you know, please, if you like the song, comment on it, share it. Um, and if my voice ain't the greatest, let me know. Because then <laughs> next book, when I got a new song, I'll, I'll stay out of it. Or if you want to hear more of me, let it get to my head. I'll do the whole song only. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so um, the, the Rain was, a, was an awesome project. It, took a, it was a labor of love because it took a long time to get it done. But I'm really happy with, you know, where it got to. Um, and Lastly, uh, last shout out to um, uh, DJ Fab and uh, DJ Elsid. They helped with like kind of the final mixes and making sure everything sounded like crystal clear and 
serene and like holy. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited for people to hear that song. Um, and for it to be out there and all these amazing people I just mentioned for them to be recognized for their great work. Yeah. The um the cover, um, there's there's three of them. Do you want to talk about that process and uh the symbolism there? Yeah, so with the three covers, um, right, Situationship, obviously I had one cover, amazing cover drawn by Jordan Barrows, another like dope Boston um, uh, um, artist, he, you know, shout out to him. Um, he did an amazing cover, but it was just one cover. And for the, for the new book, you know, I was thinking, all right, what can I do that's different? And part of it was during that time, I'd gotten a vinyl, a Kanye vinyl for uh, my sister, dark, uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. I'm sure I said that acronym probably wrong, long title, but it's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. let's say yeah, let's say dark fantasy, right? Um, and I got the vinyl. I had like a vinyl face, and um, in the vinyl, it comes with like the posters, so different covers, which I kind of had forgotten that that album had several different like alternative covers. It had obviously one official cover for retail, but it had alternative covers. And um, you can't see it now, but on my wall are three, like three of the alternative covers that I love the most. And so I just had this up there for like, what, three years now, two, three years. And I'm just staring at these three covers. And I'm just like, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Doing three covers. Um, and I want these three covers to continue the story, right? Um, once again, these three themes of love, um, uh, religion, and uh, uh, social injustice race. Um, and so I was able to find an artist to work on that. Her name is um, Halima Smith, um, also known as Art Piece. She is dope. She's on Instagram. Her account is like blowing up like crazy. I'm really, really lucky. I think I, I think I got to her before it was going like really crazy. And then maybe her price point would have been a lot higher. But I think I, I think I got there at a good time. Um, but like shout out to her because she made a, you know three dope covers. Um, all tell, you know, they all tell different stories. They all have little, you know, on each cover, you'll see Be That Voice. You just have to search for it. Um, it's, you know, on some it's easier than others, but each, co each cover has Be That Voice. Um, and the love cover um, is the official cover. Um, the uh, religious cover, which is like uh, a black woman with chains, um, the biggest one being like a cross pendant, um that one is the ebook cover and then the social uh justice cover is um a cover of a protest that is the limited edition one so um that limited edition uh by the time this interview is done i don't think it'll be out yet and how it's going to be out but it will be out soon and if anyone's interested in that just be on the lookout um because that's a really dope cover it's got to be in the hands of people i can't keep that to myself the whole time um so yeah so that's kind of the thought process behind the three covers um this once again tell this story i i wanted this book to be more than just a book i wanted it to be multimedia with these three covers with the marketing component of it with all the videos and everything i tied into it. i wanted this to be an experience um similar to the release event which we could talk about too, but um, everything, everything is more than just what it looks like on surface. And that's what kind of led to, once again, that the three covers. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the collaboration with Joe Tavares? Yeah, 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 yeah. So shout out to Joe, um, another one of my good close friends, um, another dope artist. Um, and, you know, that's been in the works, I think, for years. 
Uh, so for more background, Joe and I were on the same step team um, back at Boston College. Uh, and, you know, we've always worked together creatively in that sense, um, obviously in a different capacity. Um, but like one thing I really love about Joe is that Joe is really good at um, listening. He's really good at listening and then putting action to things. Um, you know, when we're on the team, whether I'm providing him feedback, he listens. Whether we need him to speak up and share his own opinion on something that we're that you know we're questioning, he speaks up, right? So Joe is like a great definition of a good collaborator because he's just a good person in general. Um, and so you know that was kind of our origins. But then as he starts to get into the art space, we're like, yo, we got to collab at some point. Some point we got to do something like like no brainer, right? And so um, by the time I came to Joe. I think it was early last year. Yeah, it may have been early last year. And I told Joe, this is a funny story. So I told Joe, you know, this is what I'm doing, this book. And I feel bad because I kept telling Joe, like, it's going to be released mid next year. And they, or I told him, like, early next year. And it went to mid next year. And it went to, like, end of last year. Sorry, um, all this last year, last year, last year. And now it's coming out, like, mid, you know, 2022. So I felt bad for Joe because I kept pushing it. But, um, uh, you know, I told Joe about the idea overall, him making a painting inspired by a poem in the book. And he loved that idea. And it was interesting because with Joe, you know, he had never done this before too, even though he was really eager to do it. There was a moment of, not to get into too much detail, but there was a moment where he just didn't know if he could do it. Um, not because he wasn't able to do it, but just because like, uh, he, I think he thought that um, he needed to fulfill whatever I wanted him to do in that regard. Sometimes people like something, sometimes people like to be like over whoever they're collaborating with and make sure that they get their idea and vision correct. I'm not like that. I'm working with you for a reason, right? Like even you, like I'm doing this interview for a reason because you have a lens that I don't, and I want you to add that lens to my own vision. So I'm very, like, I'm a very easygoing, like collaborator. Um, just, I just need communication. That's literally it. But like, do your thing. I'm just here to 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 watch and be amazed too. So once I gave Joe, I think once I gave him that green light, like it went from like, I don't know if I could do this to now, hey, Joe, here's a green light. Do whatever you want to do, bro. Like, I'm not going to impede on your creative process. A day later, he goes, all right, can you send me a video of you performing the poem? Because he listens to music um when he's painting and so like he just needs that sound to like give him inspiration and like boom go away at it i was working at the time so i couldn't like respond immediately an hour later he goes painting's done never mind you want to come see it and i'm just like wait what like that's a crazy like 180 like you, you first went from like i don't know if i could do this to like can you send me a video it's like it's done don't even worry about the video and when i came to his, his studio and saw this amazing huge painting like it, i think you told me it's one of his biggest pieces just huge it's beautiful i was amazed i was amazed that it was made so quickly i was amazed by like you know i let him choose whatever lines he wanted from the book um and he chose he chose black roses as the poem and he chose a certain line in there that i just thought was like brilliant um and like it, it was awesome and that painting is like there's a reason why we cherish it so much because it just it's so beautiful and how it's created was beautiful and that painting has been done for nearly a year like 
Like we've had it tucked away for nearly a year because I had to get everything else lined up marketing wise and the book wise. So to be finally able to, you know, show it to people, I'm sure for him, but I know for me, like is like a blessing in itself. And I get, I'm happy to see the response that people are getting or that are giving from it. Um, and yeah, so like that, that was more so that, that project with Joe, shout out to Joe once again. Yeah. Is there uh, any other symbolism or, or things within the, the, the book that you want to talk about? Otherwise I might ask some uh, more general questions. Um, let me see real quick. Any other symbolism or like, um, little Easter eggs that people might not notice, um, when reading it initially. Um, oh, I got one. Um, yeah. So another inspiration, I know I mentioned, uh, Boys in the Hood and Good Kid Mad City. I'm really inspired by, um, uh, Biggie and Tupac. I may have said this in my first interview, but like, I'm big on like having dead mentors. Um, which for anyone that's not familiar with that, it's like, you know, you have mentors in life, but you also have mentors that maybe not, might not be alive anymore. But anytime that you have a question or like, you know, you're getting into, let's say music, let me go look at what Pop did. Let me go look at what Biggie did. You can consider them as a mentor. So, um, like they're some of my biggest inspirations and, you know, they're in this book a lot. So, for example, in the dedication, it's not even a titled poem, but for the dedication, you'll notice that, um, and life after, I say, and life after that is not life after death. For you, small problems are no biggie to pop kits full of money are wanted, but a mind full of resiliency is needed. And inside of it, I don't know if people can see, but so any animation you, or any drawings you see in here, it is me. Shout out to me. Um, so I got my little doodle on. That's a Tupac um, bandana, and then that's Biggie's crown. Yeah. Right. So those are just my little no um, uh, nods to them. Um, but it gets a little bit deeper later on, where I say um, during you know the 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 section where it's really like the Nala and the narrator kind of being in love and, and enjoying their love. I have a poem called "When I Die," um, and it's actually inspired by suicidal thoughts by Biggie. Um, and so suicidal thoughts is enough to be said, like it's a class house, like on Biggie's end, but I decided to kind of take that song and kind of warp it to like, now in this section of the book, once again, it's when they're, you know, they're falling in love with each other and they're enjoying themselves. Um, but the narrator is kind of desperate. Like this is something he desperately needs. He needs this kind of love. So that's why I wrote, um, Everything I'm saying, I'm about to say, is if you listen to Suicidal Thoughts, you'll hear where I got this from, yeah. at least rhythm-wise. Um, but this is called When I Die. So, when I die, fuck it, I want to be with you. This red and blue put me through bull and shit that isn't hard to tell. It doesn't make sense leaving you and being with the others born and white. I want black love and black power. So that's from Suicidal that rhythm, per se, is from Suicidal Thoughts, for that cadence. But then right after I have, but if I die tonight, my ignorance, despite desires, of par uh, desires for parity, is passion that's placed in poetry. So if I die tonight, that's actually a song by Tupac, right? So I decided to kind of bring those two together and write this poem when I die, um, to kind of represent that duality and this idea of this, this, this tough subject of dying and stuff like that. But I just represent desperation of what would you want to do if you knew your time was coming. Um, and for this book, it's he just wants to be with this Nala character. Um, 
And so, yeah, so that's what I would say when it comes to um, any other symbolism. There's more Biggie and Tupac all over the place. Black Man Commandments is a nod to the Ten Crack Commandments by Biggie. Um, no matter how you, how you try is uh, a nod to Tupac. It's from a Tupac song. And then also I get around to uh, 2022 um, is also based or inspired by I Get Around with the Tupac song. Um, and yeah, and even the title, I Am You, I can maybe express, uh, share that in another question, but also inspired by um, Tupac. Yeah. Wow. That, that's cool. It's, it's, it's really nice to see the, not just having read, having read this um, book prior to the interview. Now, um, a lot of that is, is really intricate and really, um, really well weaved together. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I haven't asked you about the title actually. Do you want to talk about I am you? Yeah. 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 So, um, I am you, um, title is very interesting. A lot of, a lot of behind the scenes stuff with the, with the title. Um, but for the title, so in general, it took a really long time to come up with a title. That was like one of my earlier challenges with this book. This book was untitled for a really long time, like a long time. I think Easter egg, I guess. Um, uh, the initial title, uh, one of the early front runners was uh, Dying to Live With You. Um, where, yeah, I don't have to go into detail like how it would have looked like logo-wise, but yeah. Dying to Live With You. Because I thought it represented both this the, the dying piece, which is like a social injustice piece, racial piece, and then to live with you, the like the lovey dovey side of things. So I thought yeah. I married those two really well. But sometimes with us creatives, we think we're the most genius people in the world and no one ever thought of this idea. And so like what I first did was just type in uh dying to live with you. And it was mad other books that had that <laughs> title. Yeah. Um I'm very confident in my work. So I knew my book my book would have been the best out of all of those, but why even compete like that? So that was one of the reasons why I couldn't do that one. But I was just searching for titles, searching for titles. And I heard a Tupac song, one of his, I think his first album. And I've, I've forgotten the line, unfortunately, but um, the line had to do with the idea of like, like um, this is who you made me. Like, this, like, you made me like this, right? And then also I heard, I'm also a big Jay-Z fan. And Jay-Z, this, this I remember, so Picasso, Picasso baby, um, where, where Jay-Z says, um, um look america this is how you made me come through with the yay mask on like i just hearing that this is how you made me and then my brain went to i am i am who you made i am who sorry i am who you made me that was the initial title i am who you made me and it would have been i am who you made i am who you made me so mm -hmm. i am you was always going to stick out yeah over some time, things happened, and eventually, I decided to shorten it to just "I am you," um, which I think is the better title. It rolls off the tongue a lot better. "I am you," um, and the reason why I have "blessed," "strong," and everything, um, it's to, it's up to interpretation. If people read "I am you" and then see "blessed," "strong," "everything," hopefully, you feel like you're blessed, strong, and you are everything. Um, but also, blessed, strong, and everything. Those three lines come from a poem in the book 
um, to my sisters where I say, you are blessed, you are strong, you are everything they once said was wrong. Um, and so it's just, you know, a couple of nods to um, different things. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got to IMU. It was a long process, but I'm, I'm happy with the results. And I just hope that people are able to see whenever I'm wearing this hat or when I start um, uh, uh, releasing some of the merch with the IMU logo, people see that and it brings warmth to them and it makes them feel connected versus, you know, separated. Cause that's how we already, our country's already so separated. I just want something for people to see and just immediately connect. One time I was at a store and somebody was just staring at the top of my head. I started to wonder like, what's up there? I forgot I had the hat on. And they were just like, what's that say over there? I'm like, it says IMU. Which is the weirdest thing to tell somebody I am new that you've never met before. <laughs> but I hope that they appreciated just hearing that from someone that looked completely different from them. Um, and I'm hoping that other people get that same, you know, feeling. Um, and hopefully you can bring us together, even though it's something as small as a title. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious, um, just from in, in terms of your process, you know, um, how was it trying to recall some of these memories and things of that. I mean, these are, these are tough, you know, there's some bullying with the dialect There's people saying, go back to your own country. There's like, you know, food fight. Um, was it, was it interesting trying to like, I feel like a lot of people have to forget these memories in order to, to move on. And um, yeah. was it, was it, interesting trying to like remember all these incidents or things that happened yeah yeah um i yeah i completely agree with what you're saying and understand because we there are some things that are so traumatic that people tend to like put you know tuck it away um but for me i would even use traumatic as the word for them like these are just things that happened and like luckily it has never or at least it hasn't um affected me in a detrimental way to the point where i can't handle these things and all of that, like, I'm comfortable talking about these things because I don't know, it's the way I was raised or God made me, but like, I'm just comfortable sharing my experience, right? So that people are able to understand it and can learn from it. Um, people that look like me, people that don't look like me. So when I think back to like, when I was in middle school, being called an African booty scratcher, like, that was a thing to make you feel bad for being African. Yeah. I don't know why that was a thing, but that was a thing, right? And so, I, and I have that in the book as well, um, where I say, real quick, I say, um, uh, my teacher asked if I can do a better job than her. I say, we're all from here, point to Africa and get called the booty scratcher. Class laughs, my truth is funnier than Will Smith and Martin. Um, these are just things so that people are putting themselves in the shoes of this person that is all these little micro things, all these micro things. And hopefully as you continue to read them and as they start to pile up in the book, you, it, it affects you, right? It, you know, I keep noticing these like little small comments that are being made. I don't like that. That's you reading this book. Imagine actually experiencing it growing up, right? Um, and that's why childhood is a really important chapter because um, it sets the stage for what's to come after. Um, and so to answer your question, like it wasn't tough to think back to these times um it was more so of like to share your experience man it was cathartic just to get these things out and you know some of the early reviews that i've gotten from the book um from you know reputable uh, uh places they all highlighted that you know 
this is someone's experience. Some of that might be fictional. Most of it is not. Um, and they appreciate that honesty and that vulnerability because that allows the reader to hopefully be vulnerable with themselves as well, right? And put themselves into my shoes or this narrator's shoes. Yeah. Um, do you ever get tired? You know, I, I, I think it's, you know, you've maintained um, a level of passion, you know, even despite George Floyd being a mainstream news, you know, we just had, what was it, a week ago, Jalen Walker being shot at 90 times. Um, yeah. You know, do you have your yeah. days? Um, what's unfortunate is, like, my initial answer is no. I don't. And it's more so, and the reason why it's sad is because, like, I'm getting way too desensitized to this. Where when George Floyd happened, and also the thing with George Floyd is too, like, you know, you know, it was recorded, right? And so if I see George Floyd, if I see Eric Gardner, um, like when I see the, those kind of things, it's really hard to like ignore. But when you just get a report that there's been another shooting these days in 20, 2022, it's just like a, like an eye roll at this point. It went from like, I can't stop. I can't keep my eyes off of the TV to now an eye roll because it's just, I'm becoming too desensitized to it. When the shooting happened with um the, at the grocery store with the uh, the, uh Buffalo, I think it was ten. Yeah, in Buffalo, yeah. I think it was ten victims. I don't want to be disrespectful to the family, but I think it was ten though. Could be wrong, but the Buffalo shooting. Yeah, my initial reaction was another one. Like again, it shouldn't be like that. I should not be saying again. I should be outraged, and I am outraged. But it's more of a I don't know what else to do, you know. Um, and that's why, and that's the, that's the, that's what the narrator deals with in the book when his brother, his friend has been killed, what else can he do? And once again, the answer that the, this grandpa figure gives to him is just simply be that voice. Um, and I, and I know, I know be that voice is so like generic, but I do that on purpose for people to fill in that answer for themselves. What does it mean to be that voice? Um, it doesn't mean to be like me that does poetry for anyone that's willing to hear, right? Um, or does it mean to start a charity? Or does it mean to be uh, 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 a person of color in a corporate space and being able to be outspoken and shed light on some of these topics to their, their colleagues that aren't of the same culture, right? What does it mean to be that voice? It could be taken into different places. And hopefully, as we're all trying to be that voice with our own definition, it leads to some change. It leads to some gun control. It leads to some of our politicians actually caring about the things that need attention, right? We can't come off of making this uh, reversing Roe versus Wade and, you know, forcing some of these people to continue to have their babies. But yet there's no gun control and these babies are at danger or these parents are at danger anyway. Like, it's just so backwards to me. Um, it's so backwards to me, but all we can do is be hopeful at this point. All we can do is be hopeful um, and, you know, just try to be that voice in our collective spaces. You know, I guess, do you have any advice for, you know, allies on um, creating a better America? Yeah, no, I get this question a lot. Um, I get this question a lot. How do, how do I, how can I be a better ally? Um, two answers. 
I'll start off by saying that to be an ally, you first off have to be comfortable learning about another person's culture and don't feel like just because you're not of that culture, you can't speak up. And as I say this, take it all with a grain of salt, like to the viewers, take it all with a grain of salt because that does not mean be a social media activist. There's nothing wrong with that. However, sometimes like in Childish Cabino or, or Donald Glover, this la latest uh, season of Atlanta, he tackles this, which is brilliant the way he tackles it. But um, of like fake, like um, woke people, both black and white or just everyone in between. But like, yeah, just don't take this all with a grain of salt. When I say it's okay to speak up for others. Um, you know, you don't want to be a, like a, a white savior or things like that. But uh, when I say speak up for others and be comfortable doing so, I more so mean, and I, I'm also say from a, a place of experience, right? So like, for example, at work um, last year, I was in charge of, of we do monthly DE&I sessions. And I was in charge of running the um, Pride Month uh, DE&I session. I am a straight male that identifies as a male. Like I, I don't know a lot about that, um, you know, LGBTQ plus stuff. However, I wanted to learn more about it, right? And I was able to talk to some of my colleagues that were of that um, culture, um, of that uh, uh, um, uh, sexuality, um, and also just do my research on the origins of Pride Month. And it was really cool. It was really cool to just learn about another person's experience. Sometimes as a black male, just being candid, like sometimes I think like, oh, I don't need to learn anything because I'm the one that they need to learn about. Like I'm the one that's the, the minority, like learn about me. It doesn't work like that. Like you, sometimes you gotta learn about other people's culture, right? So I got to learn about the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus community and I enjoyed it. It opened up my eyes and that helped me become a better ally because I was able to create a space with this event for other colleagues to be able to share, you know, their own journeys and own stories things that they had never done prior. Like I had, you know, a colleague of mine come out in a professional space. She never, no one had known. Yeah. And she felt comfortable because I was able to provide that kind of safe space for her. Someone that doesn't even come from that community, right? So from a place of experience, for allies, open your eyes by learning about another person's culture. Talk to these people. Don't just do the research, but talk to these people of different cultures. And then that helps you to feel comfortable providing a space, a safe space, right? So that's the first answer. The second answer is now you've created a safe space, right? For these people, hopefully, or sorry, for marginalized people. You've created a space where we're all learning. That's cool. But you got to talk to your friends, the friends that are never going to be in this space, the friends that are never going to want to learn, the friends that are going to say inappropriate jokes, insensitive jokes, because they're around y'all. Like you have your own circle of friends that are gonna feel comfortable saying some you know, messed up stuff because they're around each other and they don't think anyone's gonna correct them. You, if you hear a joke or you hear something that isn't correct based off of everything you've learned from this community, you need to speak up. You can't just chuckle and laugh or, or in the back of your head say, eh, if I bring it up, I'm gonna ruin the vibe, it's gonna be awkward. You have to say something because I'm never gonna be in that space. And even if I was in that space, they're not gonna feel comfortable straight up saying those jokes to me because I'm there. But if you, that's someone that is their friend, someone that looks like them, someone that is their relative, you say, hey, yo, that's not cool. I know you're joking, but you, you can't say those kind of things. They may either accept that and say, my fault, you're right. It's good for me to know that. 
or they may say you're, you're being sensitive. Relax. It's just a joke. Even though they may have been defensive, in the back of their mind, they know that, oh, last time I said this comment or joke, I got resistance. So now this next time that I'm going to say, I'm either not going to say it because I don't want that resistance again, or I'm going to kind of, you know, think through what I want to say. Because that, that seed has been planted in the back of my mind, right? So that's my advice to, to uh, um, people that want to be allies. Learn about the culture, hear stories from people. Then also correct some of your own people because I won't be able to talk to them like you can. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say to that. Yeah. Um, another question is, you know, um, there might be some, you know, younger aspiring poets that are looking at your journey and, and saying, I want to do something similar to him when I grow up. Um, do you have any advice for um, those types of people? Yeah. So I would say, you know, if you have a dream, first off, don't feel like rushed to like get to like whatever space you're going to get to. It's a whole journey. It takes a while to slow grind. Sometimes it's not quick. So that's the first thing. Um, and, but if you're really passionate about it, also have a plan, have a strategy. It doesn't mean you have to know how you get from A to B to C to D. Like it doesn't mean that. But just know what maybe your end goal is, per se. So for me, when I was in college or in high school, actually, as early as high school, I knew I wanted to write books. But then I did research and I realized how much, you know, authors usually make. Not everyone is J.K. Rowling, right? Like, it's not going to be quick and easy. Not everyone is Amanda Gorman, right? Yeah. Like, it's not going to be like that um, for a lot of people. So you can't, some people might not be able to be able to live off of that, right? So I knew that because of my research and I decided, well, I want to have a business oriented background. My parents own a store, so I kind of already had that background. But in college, I was an English major and I knew that even with English majors, and I, I did that because I love writing. I wanted to work on my craft as a writer, get really good at that. That's when I really learned how to write poetry throughout my English, um, time, or English major um, time at Boston College. Shout out to all the amazing um, English department there. but. Um, I knew that I didn't want an English, traditional English job after college. Traditional English job would be a teacher or a journalist. There's nothing wrong with those jobs. Those people are heroes too. But I just knew that for me, I didn't want to do that. Just in general, I, don't, I didn't want to be either of those things. And also I wanted uh, a more stable sense of living financially. So I knew I wanted to go into business. And what I did during my summers in college, because I already knew this end goal, during my summers in college, you know, during the semester, I'm doing my English major thing. But during the summers, I'm doing business-oriented internships. My um, first internship was a marketing one at a startup. I didn't get paid a dime. The second internship was a sales role. I didn't get a dime. Like, I probably lost money, like, you know, just on gas and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, this, like, a startup CEO was as old as I am. Like, I mean, startup, startup. Um, but, like... Some of the things that we did was like we made websites uh, for mom and shop pops. Um, sorry, mom and pop shops, and like we would literally go to these like we would scout them out on Google Maps, like literally search through Google Maps for uh, restaurants or stores that you know if you if you see like uh, John's Pizza Shop, and then I type in John's Pizza Shop online in that city, and it doesn't pop up. You don't have a website, so we would literally go to those places and like just pitch our services. 
we weren't the best at it. Okay. I even got a couple of like hard no's, like like not just a no, but like a no and like you don't deserve to be on this earth type of no. Like <laughs> oh, a damn. Like, yeah, like <laughs> damn. But yeah. um, but you know, I, I took that um and I was able to share that experience in my um interview, right? My senior interviews with different companies. Um and you know, uh luckily I got an offer from Citizens Bank. Shout out to Citizens, um, great company. I recommend anyone to work there. Um, amazing colleagues there. I'm doing some great work. But, um, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why I was hired because I was able to diversify my resume. I was an English major, which means I know how to write. I know how to communicate effectively. But I also have this business background for startups. Right? You know, I, I made that passionate decision to do this work, marketing work, sales work. Being able to take a no like that, like I think they appreciated that. And I share all of this, not as a tangent, but I share all of this because I got that job that funded my dream. This is where it comes back to the book. I love citizens. I was able to teach financial literacy for years and I loved working there. But I knew that it was also funding my passion, which was to do publishing or to do poetry, to do writing, right? And to publish your work. That costs money or self-publish it. It costs money, not cheap. So my job funded that in a sense, right? Um, I for situationship, I wasn't worried about funds. I wasn't worried about how many, I wasn't worried about how much money I got from the copies I sold because money was not the issue. I had money from my job, my day-to-day job, which allowed me to be more experimental and more creative and do this out of love versus out of money. So to answer your question. Anyone that has a dream, especially of getting into poetry or writing books, know what your strategy is. Your strategy might not be my strategy, right? But I started off knowing, I did my research. I knew that they didn't make enough money. Or usually, most authors don't make enough money. How do I fund my dream? I knew all this early, and then I started to create my story to now fund what now has led to I am uh, situationship and I am you. Um, and so, so yeah, so just know what you want to do, you know, ahead of time, have your long-term goal. It doesn't have to be step-by-step, step, but know your long-term goal and start to strategize from there. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to say we've talked about quite a bit. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? Um, I think we have got to everything. I think we have got to everything. Um, if, uh, just to uh, finish it off, I could read two more poems. Yeah, That's let's cool do it. You. Yeah. All right, cool. So these next two poems are from a section of the book where the character, once again, you know, his brother has passed or has been murdered. Um, and he, you know, is trying to figure out how to, you know, bring justice uh, to, his, to his brother. And that now leads to these next two poems. The first one is how to apply pressure. Um, and for context on this, this poem I wrote after Breonna Taylor, um, when her family, when the cops that shot her were not charged, um, or at least were not found guilty. I can't remember if they were charged or not, but they weren't found guilty. I don't even know if they got to that point, but they weren't found guilty. Instead, her family was given $12 million, which like, I think that's not enough. Um, and so I wrote this poem at that time. 
you know, once again, in the context of this book, it's the characters, one of his answers to how to apply pressure after a merger. How to apply pressure. We vote because freedom can't be sold. We vote because 12 million won't bring back a beautiful black soul and won't amount to all the times we have to fight back tears and whisper, we miss her. And it definitely won't buy them into a future where their privilege is no longer an issue. Yes, we cried for change, but used dollar bills are not tissue. We need new sheets of laws, love, and liability to keep our eyes dry, to keep black lives alive, to deny their bullets from ever seeing the light of day on the darkest of skin. How do I apply pressure? Amazing. And so um, that's how to apply pressure. And then also the next poem after that is to the black cops, right? So now once again, this is a section of the, of the book where the character, this is his starting to learn, okay, how can I fight back in a sense, right? So this is to the black cops. To the black cops who even hate the blacks of their gums weight. Before I continue, this poem is not to the black cops who did everything to make it through whose skin went from black and blue from brutality bruises to earning a suit black and blue and a badge of honor too, who joined the force to protect their own people from the blunt force that abused them for too many years, who desired to stop gang violence, not realizing they joined the biggest one, who cry guilty tears every time they hear their peers survived another court trial where a child was murdered with the reason unclear. This poem is not to you. So back the black cops who even hate the blacks of their guns. Don't you realize no matter who you make a life with, you will have a child who will be black too? The black cops. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, so just yeah. wanted to share those last two with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, for anybody that wants to support you or what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Yes, so uh, by the time this interview is out uh the book won't be out yet but even so if you hear this much later on buy the book please um i hope you've enjoyed this interview so far and you know now that i kind of brought light to a lot of the symbol symbolic meaning um behind a lot of things in the book hopefully this kind of gives you a, a second reading in a sense um and so you can buy the book on amazon um, at barnes and noble like google books it's everywhere um and so yeah it's I am you, a book of poetry. Um, and when you do buy the book, no, forget cross, when you do buy the book, um, also please feel free to um, you know, rate it as well. Also feel free to put an honest review. I'm not asking for only good reviews. Please be as honest as possible. Um, I would appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I would love for that to happen. And also you can follow me on Instagram at Osama State Tour Best. Um, if you follow me. I usually follow back, so um, feel free to do so. And a lot of my work is on there as well, especially a lot of the marketing that went into this, um, which a lot of those videos kind of add another layer to these poems um, as well. And then lastly, visit my site. It's osamasetorbest.com. Um, it'll keep you up to date with everything that's going on with me and I am you and all of my poetry work in general. Um, there's going to be the, the ebook will be on there as well. Um, merchandise will be there too. So, um, and just reach out to me. You can reach out to me on Instagram or on my site, whether you are, you know, you have honest feedback for uh, um, I am you, 
whether you just want to learn more about my journey, whether you are creative, it doesn't even have to be poetry. You just want to chop it up, talk, learn more about my process, learn, you know, ask me questions about your process. I'm an open book, so I just love to talk to people. Um, and I love to help my community. Um, I love to help people learn. I help. I love to uplift people as well. So, um, yeah, those are the ways to support me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. As I'm saying, I just want to acknowledge you, man. It's it's really awesome to watch you, um, you know, continue to, um, you know, give perspective on um, the experience of a of a black person in America. And like I said, you know, I think a lot of us um, as people of color can get lazy in, in terms of, you know, um, just accepting the norm as the norm. And, and you're really, um, with these books and these poems are really changing the narrative in terms of just providing that context of what it is, you know, someone that's grown up white all their life with no um, accent or anything like that doesn't have a perspective of this. And, and you're trying to provide that perspective and um you know just respect you continuing to to make write and and make poetry um even with everything going on and in, in life and uh i you know i i wish you the i wish you the best this is an absolutely um terrific piece of work with um especially with all the context of the symbolism and everything um you know, this is this is a really uh, really good uh, piece of Thank work, you. and uh, I hopefully the the broader public recognizes that. But uh, even if they don't, that man, this is this is uh, incredible. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you.